you would bow your head, we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, um, we just, we thank you so much for what the last couple weeks have meant um, for our lives, uh, what they represent, um, the reminder that you loved us so much that you sent your son in the form of a, a newborn baby, um, vulnerable, human, into our world that we might relate to you in a new way, that he might live a life that would be an example for us and how we ought to live our lives, and that he would ultimately go and, and die so that we can be reconciled back to you. And in this time, in this season, we just pause and remember that fact. Remember that part of your story. Um, and we are so grateful for that reality. And as we come here tonight, as we gather once again after being off for a week or two, um, we know that you are here amongst us, that you have gathered us together in your presence. And so we ask that you would be here in a real and tangible way, that your spirit would be present among us in our conversations, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear the words that you have to say tonight, Lord, so that we might be your church, that we might be your sons and daughters, and that we might be a light in this world. Um, we ask all these things in your son's precious name and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we are... Um, for those of you who have never been with us, we are in the process of going through Luke, and we are looking at Luke verse by verse. We are now in chapter 16. We've been doing it for 16 months, I think. So it will take us all of two years to get through Luke. Um, so we're taking a very in-depth look at it. Um, the last time we gathered and spoke about Luke in particular, who remembers what we talked about? The prodigal son, right? Um, the parable of the prodigal son, along with the parable of the Good Samaritan are two of Jesus' most well-known parables. Whether you're in church or not, chances are you've heard that. Um, if you grew up in Sunday school, you definitely learned about those. Um, and so we were looking at uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and we talked about um, all of the characters, not just um, the one son that runs away and comes back and is welcomed, but the father who represents God, the second son, and what the story was ultimately about is the Pharisees to whom Jesus was talking and their likeness with the second son. And so it was, a, it was a parable told to tell them about how they ought to respond to these other people who were being found, um, the sinners that Jesus was talking to, that he was eating with, that he was loving on, um, and they were getting pissed off because he was spending time with them. And so he told this parable to show them that they are the reason that he's here. He is here to seek the lost. Remember he told a parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Um, in preparation and setup for the parable of the prodigal son and tells us that the kingdom is about finding the lost. And so he's turned to the Pharisees and using this second son in the prodigal son parable um, and saying, don't be like this. Are you going to be like the pissed off older son who gets mad because God likes these sinful people or are you going to come in and join the party and rejoice with everybody else? Okay, so that's where we've been over the last couple weeks um, looking at those three parables. And then we come tonight to another parable. Um, Luke has a, a string of parables in these few chapters um, that he's piled up together. Um, it is the parable of um, the shrewd manager. It goes by the parable of the dishonest manager in a couple Bibles. Um, we're going to look at that tonight. So if we could flip over to our scripture, um, and Joey, would you be willing to read for us?
Thank you. All right, everybody got the basic story. What's going on? The very first statement, what does it tell us? Okay, that's a shift, right? We've just come out of the parable of the prodigal son, and we just sort of recap that, and we're talking about how Jesus had turned to Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite, who were complaining to him. Okay, so Luke is telling us now that the action is sort of shifting back, and Jesus is turning to his own disciples, all right? Um, we've got 12 apostles at this point, a whole group, probably 100, 100 plus um, disciples that are following Jesus, listening to his teaching, um, trying to understand who he is and what he's about. So he's turned back to that group now and tells this parable. We don't know if the actual geographical and time setting has changed. These could have come back to back. Um, Luke has definitely put them together in his telling, so we are to link them in terms of meaning and how we read them. But we don't know for sure, is this Jesus talking to scribes and then you know five minutes later he's turning around talking to his group? Or have we changed days? Or are we in a different place? We, we don't know that. But what we do know is we were dealing with one group first and now we're dealing with disciples. That's important to know who this is being told to. Um, who, who are the characters in this parable? A rich guy, right? A master. A manager. Okay. Sorry? And debtors. So we've got, I mean, what does that tell you? We've got a rich guy, right? We're probably talking about businessmen here. He's done something. He's lent um, probably some money to somebody alone, all right? So he's kind of a banker, maybe a private banker. Uh, maybe he's helped out some business acquaintances or some friends, right? He's got a reasonable sized business because he has a manager. Right, he's got somebody who oversees his business, um, and that guy has been accused of what? Stealing, maybe, but uh, wasting resources, we're told, right? So he's, he's not doing his job well. Maybe he's embezzling some of the resources for himself. Maybe he's just doing his job poorly. But for whatever reason, people have brought, we're told people have brought accusations to the master, right, to the rich guy, about this manager. What is the master's response to that? Yeah. So the master pretty much assumes that it's true. Okay, maybe he has suspicions, maybe he kind of knows that's going on. So he calls the, the manager to himself and he basically says, you're fired. And what else does he say to him? Right. Bring me your books, bring me all your business. I mean, this goes on today, right? Somebody in a, a business gets fired. All right, let's see all your books. Let's Maybe the manager's uh, expecting to find evidence that he's been cooking the books. It's pretty obvious that the, I'm sorry, the master finds evidence that the manager's cooking the books. But it's pretty obvious that he believes it and he expects to find um, evidence that this guy's not been doing his job and he's, he's definitely fired. So that's what's going on. Um, in verses three and four, which you don't really have the numbers there, I'm sorry, but uh, it says the manager said to himself, what shall I do? So he's gotten fired and he says, self, all right, what, what am I gonna do? And so he's running through his options in his head. What are his options as he sees them? He's not strong enough to work, he can't beg. Okay, so his options that he's pondering, at least here, are he can go do manual labor, he can be, you know, dig, he can be a day laborer somewhere, whether it's for, you know, the, the governmental authority, whether it's for, as a day laborer on a farm, or something like that, so he can go do manual labor. Okay, that's an option. But this translation says he's not strong enough, right? Um, other translations will indicate um, something a little different, and the word's kind of confusing, that's why you'll get different translations here. But it indicates that uh, maybe he thinks that digging and day laboring is beneath him, 
Okay, he's a manager, he's a businessman, and to go, it says he's basically not, um, not cut out for. Okay, so that's a more literal translation. It gets translated here, I'm not strong enough, but I'm not cut out for, or I'm better than being a digger, a day laborer. Okay, so he's, he's kind of got an ego about himself, probably. Um, and that definitely uh, we see in the second option, which is what? Yeah, he's not going to go beg, right? He's not going to go sit and panhandle at the gate of the town and just beg people for money that way or go to his friends and just beg. You know, he's not going to crash on your couch. You know, he's not going to be that guy. Uh, he's got some pride in himself, and he's not going to do those two options. So he's kind of in a pinch because he's, he's been fired, and he's not sure what he's going to have to do. Okay, as he sees it, those are his, his options if he doesn't do something. Um, and then in the next verse, uh, what does he do next after he's sort of pondered those two options? He says, I have decided what to do. What is he going to, what is he going to do? Yeah, he goes and collects money. From whom? Okay, so on his books, right, he's trying to, he's got to close out his books. Um, today, if you get fired, like when somebody gets fired at the bank where I work, usually they're escorted right out of the bank, right? I mean, depending on your job, sometimes you're asked to finish things up, sometimes you're just out the door you go. In this situation, likely his response would be to go close his books, and that would mean meeting with all the debtors, bringing them up on their payments, and making sure that everything is set, ready to hand over to the boss. He has a little bit of work to do to take care of and wrap up the business that he has outstanding. So that's what he's doing. So he's gathering all of the debtors that still owe money to his boss, his now former boss, and he's going to try to extract as much money and payment out of them to hand back with his book to his boss on his last day. Does that make sense? Why are you shaking your head, Joy? I don't, I don't know that I agree with your interpretation. Okay. I don't see evidence that there's actually weed or oil or whatever exchanging hands. I think that he's cooking the books so that these people owe him. Hang on to that because we'll get to that. And I should, have, I should have prefaced this. Let's back up. We are looking at... Um, a couple months ago, we looked at a saying of Jesus that was known as the most difficult saying. Okay, and had to do with blasphemy against Jesus versus blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how, what in the world is the difference? And there are lots of people who disagree. This is Jesus' most difficult parable. So we're going to find that we're, and we're going to talk about a few of them, multiple interpretations of what exactly is going on here. All right, I'm giving you sort of what I think, and we're going to talk in a minute about why I think that, and I'm going to give you some other interpretations as well as to what's going on. Is he actually cooking the books? Is he actually doing the right thing? Um, and then what does that really tell us? That's what we're struggling with today. How are we to understand this, and then what, what are we supposed to take from it for our lives? It's not the easiest parable to understand. Prodigal son is a nice, happy story. It's easy to get. It's sort of black and white um, with just a little maybe, make sure you don't forget about this part. This one's tough to understand. And so if we have these disagreements, I don't think Joey is wrong, necessarily. Um, I think they're competing interpretations, and she's hinting at one of them, which we'll get to in a minute. So hang on to that. All right. So whether he's cooking the books or whether he is actually doing the right thing, he's gathering all of the debtors that owe his boss money. All right. He's going to try and settle those accounts. I mean, we know that much. Um, now, what is going on? Let's go ahead and talk about that, I guess. What does the story tell us? Let's start there. We're told about two debtors in particular. Presumably there are many more, or others at least. But Jesus in this parable is telling us about two of them. Who are they? Oil and 
a guy who has oil, okay, olive oil, not like oil for your car. Oil, so olive oil and wheat, all right? So we're farmers. What do you know about these farmers? They're olive oil farmers and wheat farmers, right? Okay, are they, I'll walk through these and then we'll talk about it, rather than just asking random questions that you have no idea what I'm trying to get at. Okay, the first theory is what Joey said, that this guy is really dishonest. Okay, he's, he's referred to, and in this translation, the ESV translation, this section is called the parable of the dishonest manager. In some other Bibles, it's the shrewd manager, all right, because both of those descriptions get used. And presumably, he's being fired because he's done something dishonest. So we're primed to think that this guy's dishonest. So one of the understandings of what's going on is this guy's gonna meet with the, the debtors and he's going to shave off a bunch of the debt. He's gonna screw over his boss. He's gonna make the debtors happy by basically forgiving half in one case their debt, 20% in the other one. And then he's gonna look good to them so that when he walks out the door in a week after handing the books back, he can go get a job with them. Makes sense. I mean, you definitely can read the story that way. Um, the second theory, there is an exodus. It is, I believe, chapter 22. Um, there is a mosaic law set forth that says, those of you who lend money to the poor are to not charge interest to the poor among my people. And so the second theory says that what this shrewd manager is doing is he's going to the debtors who fall under this law of Moses, and he's applying that law. So what he's doing is forgiving interest and any other charges that were due to the master and extracting from them, getting payment for just the original loan or whatever was given or bartered. And so what he's doing is capping off or taking off interest and charges um, and bringing this business deal back under Mosaic law. That's a second idea. The third is a thought that this guy's a manager. He gets paid based on commissions and charges on the work he does. He's not, a, he's not necessarily a salaried employee. So everybody he collects from, he gets a portion of, right? The third idea of what's going on here is that what he's doing is going and he's getting back what his boss is owed. What he's shaving is his portion here. So that he's shaving out his commission, he's shaving out any charge, however he's structured, whether he gets a fee plus a commission or whatever that is, he's giving away his own portion and getting for the boss what is his. And so he's basically making everybody happy in that situation. He's doing right by the boss, getting his portion, and he's making his business associates happy by reducing their debt that they would have otherwise paid. Yes, he's out money, but in the end when he walks out the door, he's gonna be able to hopefully go to these business people and ask for a job there. So it's a, it's a CYA move here. I think the third is the best, and we'll talk about why in a minute. We'll have to get through the whole parable in order to understand why that's the best. But know that all three of those are valid interpretations. And so if you disagree with me, Joey, that's fine. This is one we can disagree on. This one is not, it's not cut and dry. Um, in order to make a conclusion about any one of those three, we are reading into the text. We are saying that things are going on that aren't in the text. And so we need to be honest about that. We're being honest about that. Um, and so we're drawing conclusions based upon what we think. All right. The point is, and, and the, the real point is that this guy is transacting a shrewd deal to cover his own butt so that he can get a job, all right? Whether he's, he's giving it out of his own pocket, whether he's screwing over the boss, or whether he's just bringing them back into accordance with Mosaic law, what he's ultimately trying to do is set, him up, set himself up so that he doesn't have to go dig or beg. That's his, that's his purpose. All right, now we're gonna get into 
who these guys really were in terms of the debtors and what we know from the story and why I f we'll get into why I think it's the third and why you might or might not. And you can feel free to disagree, like I said. All right, so the first debtor that we're told by Jesus that this guy gets is which guy, Chris? Oil. The oil guy, all right? Olive oil, not car oil. Okay. Oil. Not petroleum. How much does he owe? Okay, he gathers. This is important. He gathers the debtors and he says to them, what, is it, what does he ask to them? How much do you owe my master? How much do you owe? You think he doesn't know? Do you, think the, do you think the manager's like, I don't know how much you owe, how much do you owe? He knows. He knows, right? He's got books. So what's going on? Why would he, why, if, if this first guy owns, uh, what is it, 100 measures? Yeah, 100 measures of oil. Why doesn't he just say, where's your 100 measures of oil? Because he wants to make sure that they know that he knows how much they owe. Yes, we're getting it out in the open. We're making you say, I owe 100 measures of oil. So we're getting out in the open what the debt is. I mean, this is a, a psychological play here, right? This, guy, this guy's shrewd, all right? He knows what he's doing. Okay, so he's gonna make you say what you owe, and then he's gonna shave it in half, and you're gonna feel real good about yourself. He's not, he's not stupid, he's a smart guy. And so he gets this oil guy, olive oil guy, at a table, which totally brought, brought them in one by one. How much do you owe my master? 100 measures of oil. Here's why number two doesn't work, in my opinion. 100 measures of an oil, olive oil. How much is that? Take a guess. Is it a lot or is it a little? Molly thinks a lot. 800 gallons. Yes. One measure is approximately 8.75 gallons of oil. <laughs> Nate's reading commentary or something over there as we go no, through this. New Living Translation. Okay. It okay. It just comes out and says it. Okay. Hey, one measure is approximately 8.75 gallons. 100 measures of olive oil is 875 gallons, actually. Sure. 800 is rough estimate. Gallons of oil, olive oil. That is what is produced by 150 trees, olive trees. This guy owes basically a farm's worth of olive oil to this, this master, this, this business guy. So he's in, he's in serious debt. The value of that is approximately 1,000 denarii, which is the coin used. A denarius is a coin. One denarius is equivalent to one day's wage. Here, here's the conclusion. I want to lay the math out there. Okay, this guy owes a thousand days worth of regular person's work. Three, three to four, you know, three years. Three years wages this guy owes, okay? I'm gonna say it's not a poor day laborer. Okay, I mean, can we? Reasonable conclusion, this guy owes a substantial amount. It's not just a working guy, poor guy, that worked up a little bit of a debt and owns a couple bucks. He, this guy owns a lot of money. We're gonna see, yeah, Guido's gonna come break his knees, right? <laughs> All right, we're gonna see that the, uh, the weak guy, the weak guy's debt is even larger. So what does that tell us about our three options? What was option two? Mosaic law. Why? Because it's so much. One, what does it, what does so much tell you? Oh, wait, the mosaic law is a poor one, right? Yes, the mosaic law, law, law. I had trouble with that one. <laughs> mosaic law applies to the poor people among the, the culture. We're not dealing with poor people. We're, we're, these are rich farmers, agrarians, businessmen, okay? They have plantations, they have slaves, they owe 
thousands of dollars. I mean, if uh, what's the average private sector employee's salary right now is like $40,000. So in today's dollars, this is roughly 150 grand this guy owes. Not a poor person's debt. So chances are good we can reason that we're not dealing here with a, a manager who's shaving interest because of a mosaic law. That's why I would disagree with two. You can still agree if you like to. All right, it's still a valid option. So this guy owes 100, right? So he owes 1,000 denarii, denarii, all right? Three years worth of salary. And the shrewd manager says what? Got in half. Give me 500. That's a huge debt. And are we assuming that he does? Well, yeah, we're assuming that he okay. does. Because it doesn't say it does. You're right. Okay. I guess you can make the argument that you don't know. Like, okay. Deal. Seriously. <laughs> I owe you. <laughs> Business guy walks away, he's happy. Here's a guy that shrewd manager can go get a job with later because he just treated this guy real well. Um, second businessman that we run into is a guy who's a wheat farmer. All right? At least his debt is wheat. He may farm other things too. How much is his debt? Sorry? 100 measures of wheat. Okay, and I told you that's worth more. I won't go through the math, but it's a thousand bushels. You know how much that is? We're talking 3,000. So this debt is three times the olive oil debt. Okay, we're talking 3,000 denarii. So we're talking eight to 10 years worth of salary for a regular worker, not a poor worker. Was it after seven years? It's actually 50 years. It's seven cycles of seven years is the Jubilee. Does everybody know what the Jubilee is? Does anybody not know? It's perfectly fine if you don't. Okay, Jubilee is an Old Testament provision uh, within, it's called the Law of Moses, it's in Deuteronomy, um, but it is every, it's seventh cycle of seven years, so it's actually on the 50th year, so seven times seven is 49. So in the 50th year, yeah. Any debt that was outstanding, any mortgages on a property reverted back to its original owner, the debt was wiped out, it was a, um, Old Testament, pre-modern. Yeah, it was, it was known as the year, year of Jubilee, the jubilation, everybody's happy because my debt's gone, right? But every 50 years, debts are wiped out and things go back to ground zero, starting point, and then we're, we're gonna start to accumulate debt and business transactions again, okay? So it was meant so that people who were in debt weren't just consistently living in a lifelong generational debt or poverty, and things can sort of be reset. I, I, keep, I keep thinking about like, as we're hearing these two things, is that like this guy sits down with him and goes, "Okay, so you owe me three years worth of wages, so let's cut it in half." Like they and and they literally have or seven or eight years or whatever, and they go, "Okay, deal," and they just pay all this money. So they had to have had money. So I'm just even like, I know we don't have a reason for like why, but it seems really. Is there anything to that? Is there anything to the fact that these people paid up, or we assume that they paid up with? Yeah. Because it's not like he was like, like you said, it's not like you owe a thousand dollars. Okay, I can pay five hundred. We're talking about like years worth, of like thousands and thousands of dollars, and they're like, deal, and then they can somehow. No, I mean, I mean, they're. I could come up with. I could come up with if I if I owed, and granted, I'm not a We don't have a very large income. But I would rather come up with if I had a hundred thousand dollar debt. I would rather come up with fifty thousand. Sure. Fifty thousand yeah. dollars faster than what I 
Yeah. But I think what you're saying is that, that they're able to do that yeah, that's a, that's a, that's goes a, to the fact that the, we're talking people with resources. Sure, I guess that's yeah. true. We're talking people who have that sitting over here and say, okay, there you go. Right. Right. Rather than, you know, making a small payment here and there and there, gotcha. you know, as according, you know, it's basically like the bank came to you on your house, all right, so you got a $100,000 mortgage, right. rather than making a $500 payment every month right. for the next 30 plus years, just give me 50 now and the house is yours, it's, it's that kind of deal. And, and they have the cash to do it. Sure. Or in this case, the oil and the wheat to do it. All right, so if you're following your Bible, we're into verse eight at this point. Okay, so it's, take your bill and write 80. So he, he got a 20% reduction, right? He's, he's owed 100, he's now owing 80. So um, one, one of the other arguments for why this isn't interest blocked off or lopped off is because we get two, we get a 50% reduction and we get a 20% reduction and the interest is completely different, okay? It might be that the business deals carry different interest rates. I mean, so there's, there's some way to argue your way around that. So um, the master commended starts verse eight, if you're in your text. We are done at this point with the parable after this statement, okay? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Okay, what, what, what did he actually do? Oh. Say it. Light bulb just went on. You're saying like, what did the manager, what did that? Like, what the, the master, owner, yeah. He commended him. Yeah. Which means what? Let's use a different word so everybody knows. He for praised sure. him. Yeah, that's actually the trans, the actual literal translation of the word is <laughs> praise him. And there will be some people who try and say, oh, this is being, you know, sarcastic, right? If, if uh, manager is dicking over boss, it could be, good job, you just got the last dig in, get out of here. I mean, you could, you could read it that way. But when we look at the actual um, word that is used in the original language, the Greek that's used, we are talking about a word that is praise, and it is never negative. It is always positive when used in the New Testament. This is not a word that carries with it sarcasm. Sarcasm, emphasis on the wrong syllable. Sarcasm. <laughs> sarcasm, all right? This is not a sarcastic term. Master is actually praising, commending for, for his shrewdness, for, for what he just did. For getting money is kind of what I He's saying, like, good job, you got money. <coughs> yeah, okay. So we could, we could think maybe Master is just happy to get something. Maybe Master doesn't know the extent to which he just got screwed over. Or maybe Master knows and he's not mad, he's happy. And so if that's the case, that would lead us probably to the third because he's not upset, so he's not screwed over, which would indicate that maybe the master is not, or the manager is not trying to screw over his boss here. And that's why people, I'm among that camp, you can disagree again, would say that what he's done is he's shaved off his portion. And so he's taking it on himself so that he can set himself up for a job to get, you know, down the road. In which case, the master's saying to him, hey, good job, you got my money, and you're pretty smart about it, you're gonna be able to get a job. Like, you're a pretty smart businessman. And with that, Jesus ends his parable, okay? So right in the middle of what we know is verse eight, we get the master commanded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, stop thought, parable over. And now we're getting commentary by Jesus upon on what he's just said. And so let's recap, what's gone, what is this parable about? A dishonest manager got fired and collected the debt one way or another. Yeah, somehow went and collected the debt. He's done with his master. Yeah, and why was he collecting the debt in the way that he did, regardless of how he did it? To set himself up. To set himself up, right? For what? For a job, 
right? He's a shrewd manager, right? Hence the term. So there's, there's the story in the crook. And we can obviously argue and debate and think about exactly how these deals go down. Um, they're open to interpretation. But the crux, the point is that guy gets fired, he's worried about his future, so he enters into a bunch of business deals to make sure that he's going to cover his own butt, and so when he walks out the door, he can get a job so he doesn't have to go dig, and he doesn't have to go beg. So he was really wise and prudent with the way he went about it, whether or not he was honest with it or not. Can we all agree on that much of the that that's in there? I think we can safely say that's what the parable's about. And then Jesus, Jesus says this. Four, all right, so there's a direct link here between parable and what he's getting about to say, getting ready to say. Therefore, all right, because of this reason, all right, that's what four means. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Molly, you look like that makes perfect sense to you. No. <laughs> Who wants to take a stab at that statement? Sons of the world are more worried about... Okay. Who are sons of the world? Let's start there. The people that don't follow Jesus or God. People like the manager. Yes. But say that again. They're more worried about themselves. Yeah. People of this world, right? Mm -hmm. So not Christ followers in our context. Not people of God. So we've got sons of this world contrasted with sons of light. Who are the sons of light? People that follow God or Jesus. People that follow God or Jesus. Who is Jesus talking to? His disciples. We can say, you. For the, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than you are. So what he's, I mean, what is the implication? Those are who the two groups are, so what's actually telling his disciples? Tell them to be more shrewd. Yeah. The question is, we know who the two groups are. We have people like the shrewd manager, the people who are worried about money and business and covering their own butts, and then we have you people who are my followers, who are people of God, children of the light. And what he's saying is, those people of the world are smarter, more shrewd, wiser, more prudent with their money than you are. Yeah, and those are the two words. I just looked that up too. And those are the two words that, because I've been wondering what shrewd means. Yeah, that's, like, yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. right. All right, we got everybody looking up. So what did you find? Because shrewd is like sometimes not necessarily. Okay, shrewd is a Jesus Bible word that we use. Yeah. So let's well, define well, it. Sometimes though, like it, people will say someone's being shrewd, which is like not necessarily a good thing. So I was just wondering like, and it just like uh, Blue, Letter, Blue Letter Bible has it listed as just based two things, prudently or wisely, which are both good. Positive, good. yeah. Right, so. Well, and that, that begs a question. Is Jesus saying that this guy's good? Definition I found said having or showing sharp powers of judgment. Okay, I think that's a good translation. Well, one thing that's sticking out to me is that. Hang on one second. Okay. Does everybody get shrewd? Mm -hmm. we okay? Let's, before we move on. Yeah, I'm sorry? <laughs> it's a newt. Okay, go ahead. It just in relationship with that now, understanding that like the word shrewd means prudent or wise. Yeah. That it one, the thing that's been sticking out to me the whole time as we've been reading this that I've never noticed before is that the master's like, listen, here's this like something's going on. You're going to get fired, and then regardless of what his reasoning is, he 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 decides I need to do something. Yeah. And. Like, that's the thing that's sticking out to me more than anything. Yeah. It's like that he, he makes the decision. He reasons to himself. Right. I'm reasoning to myself. I need to get something taken care of. Whether it's negative, positive, whatever, that's, the, that's like the main 
beam and like sure. we wouldn't Absolutely. have we wouldn't have the parable if he hadn't decided he didn't just go all right well I guess I'll just get my report in order and get out he's yeah. like I'm going to I'm making something happen here he's taking care of business yeah he has some action that he can take and he's going to take it right. in order to take care of himself which is being called wise like what wise and prudent did, what right. he did was wise or prudent what do we think that statement says then after all that <laughs> all right. how do we understand this statement. Jesus is saying that people like this business manager that I just told you about are wiser, more prudent, show better judgment in using their money than you do. Everybody see that? He does basically say that in a minute, too. The next sentence. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do we understand why this is a compli complicated parable? <laughs> he can't just say what he means, can he? No. Some of it, I think, is lost in translation. Um, so we'll try and clear some of that up here. I'm sorry? I think it's odd that he would say, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous law. Okay, let's start there. Yeah, I, I like my translation. What's your translation? It kind of makes a little more sense. Uh, as well as uh, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you into your eternal home. So, like, use your wealth to benefit the world and others, and out of out of that help, you'll make friends that will. Out of your generosity. Yes. Good translation. Did you have another one? That's the one that I have. It's okay. All right. Um, the word. I mean, this one is more literal. The word is unrighteous. But the way it's used is much more like what Chris just read. Okay, it's not that it's evil money, but I gotta be care I gotta be careful with this statement. But I want to make it. He's making he's making a judgment call on money in general. That wealth and those who seek after. Remember, the root of all evil is what? The love. The love of money, right? Okay, so money very easily is unrighteous in practical terms. More often than not. Wealth leads to unrighteousness. Okay, so I, I think there's sort of a judgment call in the description here. Okay, but what he's not saying is go steal money, and so that it's evil, bad, tainted money, and go use it. I mean, that's not he's not saying that. Sure. But I think without some explanation, talking about this, we can think that. Sorry, yeah, it's not Robin Hood. <laughs> okay, it's still the second half statement. So when it fails, I will just point out that that's not an if. That is a win. Okay? We'll move on. Everybody get that? <laughs> it's not if your money fails, it is when it fails, because it will fail you. Alright? Another discussion for another day. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Tell me about that part of it. Their hearts? Okay. Here is a spot for <laughs> multiple interpretation, I'll tell you that. Who's the they? Too many pronouns. Too many pronouns, yes. Yeah. Who is, who, who's the they? Right? Because Jesus is saying, use your money to be generous. Make friends. Your money's a tool. Use it. So that when you die and money's no good to you, when the economic system collapses and money's no good at all to anybody, I mean, take your pick, what we're actually talking about here, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And so the question now is, who is the they? I think it's the friends. You think it's the friends. So 
I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a valid reading that the they is the people who you just made friends with. Joey's shaking, what are you? I think it goes back to Sons of Light. That's actually not that bad. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually not that bad. Actually, <laughs> no, no. Well, no, but it's, I mean, everybody's like, what? And they're like, oh yeah, no, it, it, it is, that pronoun refers, I mean, that's a, that obviously skips back several nouns, okay? No, it's a very, that's an astute observation, and it's very close to the second understanding of what this could mean, and that is, um, in Old Testament, are you, you need to say something? No, I'm just going to wait. Okay. We're not there yet, so okay. I'm just waiting. Um, in Old Testament literature, um, when we're talking about God in plural and in the image of us in creation, um, there's some, a lot of academics who will say that the plural people, like when God says, Let, let's make man in our image, that the hour is the what's known as the um, heavenly council. Okay, And so it's God. As Christians, we see it as Trinity. But... In the Hebrew text, they would see it as sort of the angelic community, the heavenly community. So there's one reading that reads this as that heavenly community. That is, they say that's who the they is. We know it for sure. I'm not going to say we do. <laughs> okay. Okay, but but I think I th hang on a second. I think that has some validity because the people that you just helped aren't the ones that get to welcome you into eternity, right into heaven. It's the people in heaven. And then the third interpretation that's out there that has some um, weight to it or some acceptance is that the they is just a reference to the Trinity itself. Okay, so similar. Those second two are similar. All right, so there are a couple interpretations on that one too. But, so with these two statements, all right, for the, for the sons of the world, all right, so what Jesus is saying after he's telling this parable is, first of all, people like the shrewd manager are smarter with their money than you are. And then he turns around and says, you need to be this smart with money, be generous, make friends, all right? Because money's a tool and it will fail you. So use it for kingdom purposes. And when you've done so, all right, when, at the end of time and you die and, you know, judgment day and all that kind of stuff, right? You're going to be welcomed into heaven. Or I think, you know, Bart, I don't think you're, you're first, when I asked the question, Bart went like this, right? He put a heart up on his heart. Like, They'll welcome you into their sort of spiritual, eternal, the part of them that's eternal, right? So you can make friends beyond just friendship. Being generous with your, with your resources is a way into people's hearts. If you're a good steward with your things, if you're generous, that says something to somebody. That tells, you that tells them that you care about them. If you do that as a Christian, as a member of the kingdom, that says something to them about God. Sure. All right? I think this is... Um, great foreshadowing into Acts, where it talks about all of them yeah. coming together, and nobody was without. Yeah, I, I didn't. They brought all their resources together and spread them to those that were in need. Sure, I, uh, we didn't have time to go there necessarily, but the commentators will draw direct parallels to Acts. You're very, that's, that's a very good pickup. Having this sort of Acts two, Acts six, communal sharing community in your mind as you read this is, is very valid, very true. Okay, so we understand what Jesus is saying with this parable. Okay, here's a question. Is he saying to be a shrewd manager? Is he holding the shrewd manager out as a moral example? Bart says no. Brian, you seem to be saying no. <laughs> I got 
this? <laughs> like, very reluctant no. All right. <laughs> Who thinks he is? Does he have to be saying either one? That's a good question. I'm, I'm asking. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's saying learn from their shrewdness and use it to yeah. 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 And I think you're right. I don't think he's necessarily making a moral judgment sure. on this guy. Like, he's using him as just an example, just like Mike just said. Yeah. That's, that's accurate. <laughs> I, I think you're very right. He's saying, look how they use their money. And I mean, if money can do that for you, imagine what it can do for us as kingdom people if we will use it properly and understand how it's to be used. Make sense? All right, let's move to the last little section we'll be done. What do we think of this whole section? And he says this is where it's at. I think this, I think this defines the rest of the, the parable. Sure, I mean, this is Jesus' big wrap-up, right? For, for his parable, okay? One who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. You are who you are. The way you act towards little things is the way you act towards the big things. If you are faithful with the little stuff, you'd be faithful with the big stuff. If you're a sneak and a cheat and a liar about little stuff, chances are you're going to be a sneak and a cheat and a liar about big stuff. If I can trust you with a little bit, I can trust you with a lot. And one is, is dishonest and a very little is also dishonest and much, right? just the flip of it. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, again, we're using that term just to understand wealth in general. Um, who will entrust you to the true riches? I think that defines the verse that we were trying to figure out. Okay. That's, Say more about that. Um, How and why and in what way? I just think that, you know, use your worldly resources. I can't remember the language that it was using. It was saying, like, the sons of this world are shrewd in dealing with their own generation. It's the light. I tell you, yeah. And I just think that... Um, I actually think it's like sort of like, I've even heard this talk before, uh, that it's like s sort of like a key to, I usually loosely use the term revival, but like, like, like it's one of the ways that God will, like he actually uses it as a kingdom principle to see like, like that his group, this group of people will like, is faithful in something as simple as money, because money is yeah. neither, it's, it's, I think that's why he refers to it as unrighteous, that's the word I was looking for. He says, like, unrighteous, like, this unrighteous thing. It's not that it's it's sinful or anything else in and of itself. It's just not righteous in and of itself yeah. either. And so it's unrighteous. And, and if we can, <laughs> as Christians, take something that's that and use it the right way, mm -hmm. God can see that um, we'll be faithful even in the spiritual things. Yeah. And so I think that, like, like, that's not just important in a parable, but even in real life that if we aren't, like, that we should be, you know, faithful in the stuff that isn't spiritual okay. and then that's when we can or will see like you know some like increase in the yeah. in the stuff that does matter you know i want to put pause on that i okay. want to skip the last sentence and i want to come back to what you yeah, said cool. because i think what i think what nate just said is huge and i want to finish there actually i'm gonna scrap what i had um so let's go back to this last statement we've talked about this a lot um no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other Right, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Is that a pretty easy principle for people to understand? Like you will, you will love something, right? You will, we've talked about this before. Everyone worships something. Right? We are created as worshipful beings. We long after something, whether it's God or money or stuff or a person or whatever it is. And the question is, what is it? Because it cannot be something other than God and God. It's one or the other. That's a really important thing to get in your head. 
We have to understand that. And then I want to come back to what you said. Um, anybody have any questions about that first? We get it? You said something about the idea that this principle is the key to revival. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I just think that, um, I, well, I just think that there are principles throughout Scripture that can like, apply to the, to the kingdom if we can use that. And I just think that, you know, he's, he's straight up saying, like, you can't be trusted. And if you, if you reverse it, he's saying, you can't, I can't trust you with spiritual things. Or, you know, if you're not being, if you're not even able to handle the things that aren't, you know, necessarily so sp so spiritual. And so I think he's saying that there's like, you know, what we're looking for in revival is like an awakening and a renewal and all these different things um, that's, that's dealing with the spiritual. And so one of the keys that is sort of like outlined or illustrated in this passage is, is, is saying, you know, with mammon, with money, with, uh, with this, unrighteous stuff like I need to be able to see you be faithful in the small stuff so that I can graduate you to the big stuff so yeah like they just correspond together like if you do this then I will release this you know sure sort of a sure um the one in the middle that we haven't yet said or talked about and if you have not been faithful with that which is another's who will give you that which is your own in this context in this parable and what we're talking about here the things that are not your own what is that what's he talking about you're not faithful with a thing that's not your own, all right? What he's saying is, you're a manager. You're a steward, all right? Which means you are to watch over things that are not yours. In the same way, this shrewd manager was to watch over the business affairs of his boss. That's so good. And what he's saying is, if, if I can't trust you with the things that I have given you, if I can't trust you with your money, with your talents, with your time, with your friends, I mean, all the things that I have given you that, that I've created in this world that aren't yours, they are ultimately mine. I mean, that's, there's another principle we, we need to get in our heads. This stuff is not ours. They are tools that we are to steward. They are resources that we are responsible for using wisely. And if I can't trust you with that, how can I trust you with what I really want to give you for your own? How do I trust you with the baby that I sent last week? How do I trust you with the truth of scripture, the gospel message that I want so badly to give to you so that you can carry it to the rest of the world. If we're not talking about money, what are we talking about as true riches? Folks, it's that. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is, use this crap wisely. <laughs> I've given you lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. But ultimately, it's going to fail if not used appropriately. If not used for kingdom purpose, if you don't steward it well, it, it's going to fail you. And ultimately, it's going to fail anyway. And what are you going to be left with? Use it wisely. And if I can trust you with a $1,000 paycheck, a $300 paycheck, if I can trust you to take care of that, I will not own, I mean, there are other places where it says, you know, he who is proven with little will be given much. And so we have this principle that God will, not, God will give you more to use, right? Not more to hoard, but more to use. But here he's saying, I will not only give you more resources, I will give you true riches that are to be your own. And here we're talking, we're, we're, we've gone away from physical resource. We have entered the realm of spiritual truth, spiritual reality. I will give you a relationship with me. I will give you a relationship with the people around you. I will give you community. All the things that you truly, truly want 
all of the things that I have created you to long after, I will give you myself. All right, and I will be yours and you will be mine. I think some smart guy said that at one point. That ultimately what is what it's after. And so the question that we have before us tonight, all right, as, as we sort of wrap this up, is are we going to be wise? Are we going to be faithful? How many people made New Year's resolutions? Who does that? Yeah, me either. <laughs> okay. right. Not one person. That's awesome. All right. So it's a, it's a reasonable time to start thinking about where we've come from and where we are. And so we have gone a little longer than I anticipated because we've had some really good conversation. But um, I wanted to take some time and sort of reflect on a few things. And so I'm going to just tell them to you, and you can on your own time throughout the week. But just as in I was reviewing this and thinking, you know, how does this apply to us, especially here at sort of the change of a year and lots of reflection gets done then. You know, what, what, just questions I had for myself. What ways in which are, what are the ways in which I have been faithful? Because the reality is some of us get this right, some of us get it wrong, and a lot of us do both. We get it right some of the time and we get it wrong a lot of the time. So where are the ways in which I've succeeded at this? Where have I stewarded my resources well? How have I set money aside and sought after God? And celebrate that. And what came of it? Lots of good has come up come from the ways in which I and we have been able to do that. Um, this is one of them. How I failed. Failed lots of ways. And what ultimately has come of that? You know, and then I mean, the, the real question is, what are you going to do? Whether or not you want to make it a New Year's resolution or whatever. I mean, the question we have to constantly be asking ourselves is, what am I going to do now? You know this. You know that God wants to give you these ultimate truths, these ultimate riches. He wants to give you loving family, you know, biological, <laughs> marriage, um, community, friends, family. He wants to give you that. He wants to give you that in real ways for your own. But we also have to steward those things and share that with each other. How are you going to do that? You know, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to make that happen? What's the problem with what I just said? Those of you who have been here for a long time. Um, if you stick around, you'll hear me say this a lot, but a lot of times people, you know, people will, will preach that message and you'll go away with thinking or hearing this. Um, you ought to be doing blank. You are not doing blank. So, you know, check yourself. Before you, you break yourself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right? You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do it. And the truth of the matter is you can't. When I try on my own power to do this, I fail every time. The gospel message is, you ought to be doing this stuff. This is the way you were created. You aren't, and you can't. But there is a Jesus, born 2,000 years ago, that we just celebrated, who did. And he died to give you the power and bring you into the relationship that will enable you to go do this. So don't go from here thinking, I have got to summon my power and my willpower. Next time I see that pair of shoes that I really want, uh, I'm going to call my accountability partner and we're going to talk about it and I'm not going to buy my shoes, right? No, you're not. You're, gonna, you're not going to call them. You're going to buy the shoes and you're going to go home and you feel guilty about it, right? Then you call your accountability partner and confess. Yeah, and then you confess. Because if you ask permission afterwards, it's all okay, right? We laugh because it's true, right? We all do it. We all do it. And you laugh because you know it's true. Because you know you can't do it by yourself. And so when you leave, when we're thinking about this stuff, when we're trying to do it right, know that God is there with you. What God's 
sacrifice does for you is enable a relationship with himself. It enables him to give you his spirit, to live with you, alongside you, in you, to empower you to do these things. So don't go here from here thinking, I have got to do this. Go here thinking, I get to live my life with God who's going to help me do this. He's going to help transform me into the person who stewards resources properly, who is worthy of receiving the greatest gifts that he has to offer. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you for the time that we have together um, as, as your children and as family together. Um, I thank you for the words that you have spoken here through all of us um, to each other. Um, in this moment, as we come and we take um, what is just bread and juice, um, I ask that you would pour your spirit out upon those elements in this moment, that you would be present in it for each of us in a real way, that whether huge and profound or in just a very small way, each of us who comes and partakes of this moment will be ever changed, that we will be more like your son, that we will be more like you, and that we will walk in a pure and more real and close relationship with you. Just ask this in your son's name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.